Hello, I'm Sue Nelson and welcome to the Planet Earth podcast. Today, we're in Formby on Merseyside, one of the few places where you can find squirrels that aren't grey. And we also travel to Glasgow to get an insight into Antarctica's past. The Antarctic during the period 50 million years before present would have been up to 30 degrees centigrade, so a truly tropical rainforest environment. The National Trust is known for its grounds and stately homes, but it also hosts five red squirrel reserves, and I'm here at one of them, in the pine woods of the Sefton Coast Woodlands near Liverpool. Now, at one point, there were more than 1,000 red squirrels at the Formby Red Squirrel Reserve, but that's no longer the case due to an epidemic of squirrel pox virus in 2008. But a four-year project is underway to understand the spread of the virus and provide insights into better squirrel conservation. Dr Julian Chantry from the University of Liverpool School of Veterinary Sciences and PhD student Tim Dale from the School of Biological Sciences work on the project and they're with me now. Oh, you're pointing. Can you see anything, Julian? There's one in the far distance, just jumping between trees there. Oh, yes. I'm so pleased because in the time it's taken me to set up my equipment, I'd not seen a single red squirrel. And the last time I was here, about 15 years or so ago, I would have seen about 8 or 10 by now. Back in 2003, 2004, the numbers were probably about 1,000 squirrels throughout the Sefton coastal woodlands. But in 2007 and, and certainly 2008, they were hit very severely by this disease, squirrel pox a disease that's caused by a pox virus, a bit like myxomatosis would be in rabbits. So it causes sores and ulcers around their eyes, mouth, on their paws, and eventually it kills the animals through, well, it's either dehydration or secondary infection. And that caused their numbers to drop to maybe 100, 150 squirrels in all. And since 2008, the numbers have slowly risen to where we stand now, at about 500 to 600 squirrels. At least the numbers are increasing slightly. Is this typical for a habitat of a red squirrel, this Scots pine woodland? Yes, this is, this is ideal habitat for red squirrels because they need pine forest and that's what we have in, in abundance here. And what do they eat? Red squirrels um, are mainly eating pine nuts. So these are the small seeds within a pine cone that the red squirrels can bite the leaves of the pine cone away and, and get at the nuts. And are red squirrels the same as grey squirrels, but just a different colour? No, it's a, it's a completely different species. They're probably half the size that a, a, a grey squirrel is. And they're suited to a slightly different type of habitat, really. They can't eat unripened nuts like acorns and, and hazelnuts that the grey squirrels can. So the grey squirrels automatically have an advantage in, in a mixed woodland because they can eat the nuts before the red squirrels can. Tim, you pointed out that red squirrel before that was, was saw in the distance leaping from branches across, across the trees. When you come out into the reserve, how many squirrels do you tend to see each day? Now, we uh, generally see, I'd say, from four to eight. I mean, we have uh, managed to get the maximum one day was 12, which was just a few weeks ago. I suppose with working in the forest for sort of 12 months now, you do become um, sensitised to what you're looking for well in terms of squirrels you're actually hearing for something first you often hear them chewing the pine cones before you actually see them it's through sort of listening that you can uh, guide your eyesight to where a squirrel will be 
Julian, then, what are you actually trying to do here? Throughout the project, Tim's project, we're monitoring the health of the red squirrel population as it's recovering from this epidemic back in 2008. And we're doing this by catching the squirrels on a, on a monthly basis and just making sure that their body condition, so their weight and their, their fat reserves are up to standard for them to survive the forthcoming season. And we'll find out how Tim goes about his work a little later on in the podcast. Hot and humid with tall trees and giant reptiles. This is a description of Antarctica 50 million years ago. By studying this warm period in Earth's history, scientists hope to gain an insight into both our planet's past and, with global warming, a possible future. Richard Hollingham went to meet University of Glasgow scientist James Bendel, a member of a major international project that's been drilling down into Antarctica's past. OK, so we're in the Glasgow Botanic Gardens. It's a beautiful old Victorian glass house and... We're surrounded by plants from around the world, tropical plants. It's humid. It's probably about 15 or so degrees centigrade, which is about 15 degrees warmer than it feels outside. I have to say, outside it's bleak, it's cold. I did just see one ray of sunshine just about penetrating the glass. But in here, it looks like, certainly at eye level, a jungle. Absolutely, and the the reason that we've that we've come here is to try and get some sort of sense of what the Antarctic continent would have looked like or felt like prior to about thirty five million years before the present. So, what would it have been like? Like this, even warmer. I mean, uh, a lot of the data that we're currently starting to generate suggests that the Antarctic during the period fifty million years before present would have been up to thirty degrees. Centigrade, so a truly tropical rainforest environment on the continent. So it, it would have been very green, abundant in, in plants and animals? We know that uh, it was dominated by something called meta-sequoia forests, which are related to the sequoias that you get in California today. So these are these enormous, mm. thick-trunked, yeah. very high trees? Yeah, and in some of the, the ocean sediment cores off the Antarctic, we're working on some of our colleagues find pollen that is indicative of that kind of environment. We don't know a huge amount about the ecology of, of the Antarctic during this the pre-glacial greenhouse world because most of it is now under several thousand metres of ice and it's extremely difficult to get to. So the, the knowledge of the pre-glacial Antarctic environment is really a, a jigsaw puzzle and we have only a very few small pieces of that, of that puzzle. Could we assume, though, there, there were animals as well? I don't know, reptiles, crocodiles, those sorts of things? Absolutely, yeah. There would have been uh, diverse fauna, and, and including large animals. One of the interesting things to think about is that the Antarctic was still right over the South Pole. It was still pretty much in the position it is in today. So certainly in the middle of the continent, you would have had six months of long days or, or sunlight and six months of near darkness. We don't have anything on the, on the planet that is like that today. Now you're investigating <clears throat> what it was like back then. Should we go back to the lab and, and have a look at, at the work you're doing? Sure. So James, we've come into your laboratory. 
at the University of Glasgow. And this is the stuff that you've been drilling for in Antarctica. A small bag of sediment. I should say that there was a lot of sediment and you've just got a small bag of it. So this has undergone quite a journey. These samples were extracted from a sediment core that was collected firstly from 4,000 metres of water depth. Um, so four, four kilometres beneath the, the yeah. surface of the water? Four, four kilometres beneath the surface of the water, we reached the bottom of the basin that we were drilling in. And then the ship drilled through 1,000 metres of sediment in the, the depth of sediment from about 900 metres depth to 1,000 metres depth, we reached these Eocene sediments, the sediments that were deposited during this pre-glacial greenhouse Antarctic world. So you've got a small plastic bag of what well, just looks like grey mud, really, but this is from 50 million years ago. And it doesn't look that impressive. It just looks like regular mud or, or sedimentary rocks that you would find anywhere. In these kind of sediments, we don't have any recognisable large fossils that are obvious. So that's why we use we look at the microfossils, or in this lab, molecular fossils. So you grind this up, and you you've got the result of that in in this foil here, which is a just a fine grey powder. And then that fine powder is subjected to a series of extractions with organic solvents that pulls out all of the organic material that can be dissolved and then that is further separated into different chemical classes that we can then analyze i should say the laboratory around us is a hive of activity you've got these fume cupboards with people in in white coats great bottles full of of chemicals and flasks and, and tubes it looks like a proper proper chemistry setup here chris gallagher is one of the researchers working on this. Chris, what are you trying to find out from this powder? What what are you trying to extract? One of the main chemicals we look for is a GDDT, and um, these are made by archaea in the water column. And basically, depending on the environmental conditions, they will change their structures. So it's uh, dependent on temperature. And basically, the bacteria want the archaea want to survive at certain temperatures, so they have to change their membrane in order to survive. So archaea, they're a little bit like a bacteria. They're very primitive microorganisms. they're they're closely related to bacteria, they're quite similar. So you've got a a chemical indicator really of of what it was like at that time period? Uh, Yeah, you can reconstruct the temperature from 50 million years ago. So what can you learn from from this information? Well, the information, the data that we're getting so far tells us that the Antarctic during this period was a terrestrial, subtropical or even tropical environment with uh, well-developed soils and vegetation on land. We get molecules that come from plant waxes and soil bacteria. And we also get some molecules like the tetraethers produced by archaea, which allow us to reconstruct sea surface temperature. And that tells us that the sea surface temperature during this period 50 million years ago was extremely warm. It's early days, we're only just getting this data but the background temperatures are about 30 degrees centigrade. That's like the temperatures of the tropics today. And superimposed on this background warmth, it was already a very warm world, and we're getting early data that is suggesting we have a a number of what we call hyperthermal events. These hyperthermals are really interesting because it's thought that they were caused by rapid and sudden inputs of carbon dioxide into the atmosphere. Which is what is happening right now. So could Antarctica be like that again? If we follow a pathway of business as usual, fossil fuel intensive economy, and we end up with eocene levels of carbon dioxide in the atmosphere, 
then sure, the atmosphere globally will warm by four, five, six degrees centigrade. The warming in Antarctica will be amplified. It will be even greater than that. And over time, it might take several thousand years or longer, the ice will recede and that would be replaced by a forest environment. James Bendel from Glasgow University. And you can see a video of James in the Botanic Gardens, along with videos and photos from his Antarctic expedition, on our Facebook page. And while you're there, you can also check out our videos of fossil trees and proof that water doesn't freeze at zero degrees. Not many degrees above zero here at the moment at the Red Squirrel Reserve in Formby on Merseyside, but I'm here trying to keep warm with Julian Chantry and Tim Dale from the University of Liverpool. Tim, describe what you've got in front of you here. I mean, we've got four of the, the traps we use for the squirrels. They are, in fact, uh, mink traps, but they generally um, use the same principle. So they're basically um, just a wire, a long rectangular wire cage, aren't they? That's right. With a pressure plate in the back, which has a trigger that allows the door to uh, sort of spring shut when that pressure plate goes down. We usually bait the back of the trap with uh, sort of peanuts, maize and black sunflower seeds are quite uh, favourable. And um, where do these go? These go, I mean, we've got two uh, tactics for catching uh, the squirrels. One goes on the floor and the other one goes on the uh, tree trunk vertically. They tend to work better for red squirrels, whereas the ground traps uh, work better for greys. And once you've trapped the squirrels, what do you do then? I mean, the first thing to do, because uh, as first concern is the welfare of the squirrels and just cover the trap. It tends to calm them down. They don't feel as frightened then. And then we'll get all set up with his equipment to uh, handle and sample the squirrels. Julian, once you've got a sample of blood from a red squirrel, what are you looking for? We're looking for antibodies to the squirrel pox virus, which shows that these squirrels have survived the epidemic back in 2008 and now have antibodies, a degree of immunity to this virus. And so far... Tim, what have you found? We've found uh, a small number of the population that do um, seem to have antibodies to uh, the pox virus, which is certainly uh, promising news for both control or um, conservation methods later on, because it does say that a vaccine might be a viable option. In terms of numbers, it is a very, very small percentage, so it isn't the answer to uh, the red grey squirrel disease problem. When you say red-grey squirrel disease problem, is this because a grey squirrel's immune to this virus? Effectively, yes. It seems that uh, the grey squirrels brought the squirrel pox with them when they came over from America. And because the grey squirrel has evolved with that virus for a long time, it doesn't cause any clinical disease. So um, they're able to carry on normal life without it affecting them. Whereas when it's passed over into the red they get quite a severe disease. It sounds as though this is potentially good news for the red squirrel population, Julian, but um, I do sense, particularly from Tim, a a touch of caution there in terms of what might be expected. Yes, it's it's perfectly right. You've got to be a bit cautious when you interpret these blood results. It's good that some of the squirrels have encountered the virus and survived and now have antibody, but that doesn't necessarily mean that they are immune. All we can do is monitor the population as we are trying to do. If another outbreak occurs, you'd hope these squirrels would be the ones that survived and their offspring, but we just don't know without monitoring the group. Tim Dale, you've got a brown cardboard box here at our our feet. 
What's inside? So what, what we've got here is um, one of the red squirrels that we've um, chipped and uh, sampled. Uh, when I say chip, it, that's an identichip, so we can identify each individual squirrel um, that we've caught in the past, and we're about to release it after uh, its uh, experience with us. How do you choose the right place to release it? It's generally um, in the same place that we've caught it, um, that way so we're not uh, moving squirrels around the sort of park or anything like that. It's where, where we've um, sort of managed to catch the squirrel and we release it in the same place. OK, right. Are they quite shy creatures? Definitely. Um, generally we'll have to be reasonably quiet now so yeah. we don't. So. OK, you're opening the box. It's like lots of dried hay and straw in there. Gently moving it. Where is it? Oh my goodness. Oh, it is small, isn't it? So what do we do now? Do we move back slightly? Okay. I've moved away. Oh! There it went. Up a tree. I was quite surprised there to see it had a, a white stomach. Yeah, yeah, all, <laughs> all uh, red squirrels are white underneath. That gave me quite a fright there. It suddenly scarfers, doesn't it? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yes. Wow. Yeah, they don't hang around. They're fast little creatures. Julian Chantry and Tim Dale, thank you both very much indeed. And you can find information on this story and other news from the natural world on our host website, Planet Earth Online. Next week, Richard will be featuring geese, mongooses, leeches and diving in the Antarctic as he looks back over some of the most intriguing and adventurous audio diaries from scientists over the past 12 months. Until next time, goodbye.